What's up, everybody? It's the Blacklist Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Franklin Leonard, founder and CEO of The Blacklist. And I'm Kate Hagan, director of community at The Blacklist. And we are coming to you recorded from a bunker a mile beneath the uh, Hollywood sign. Kate and I are very good at social distancing at the time of Corona. We got a pile of great screenplays here. Kate's got a library of VHS tapes and multiple VCRs. We're ready for the apocalypse. We hope you all are staying safe and staying healthy and know that we have your back during this time. We do indeed. And one of the ways in which we have your back is by having our podcast back. Some of you are listening to this and saying... I remember a Blacklist podcast. It was really good. There were interviews and there were readings of screenplays and then it just went away and I missed it and now it's here again and I'm really happy. And to you, we say thank you. Many of you are probably also saying, what is the Blacklist podcast? And more importantly, what is the Blacklist? I associate that with communism. And to you, I say, let me answer your question. So the Blacklist in 2020 is something that I started when I was a junior executive at Leonardo DiCaprio's film production company. My job was to find great screenplays that we could either make or work with the writers again. It felt like I was doing a very bad job of finding those scripts. Most of the scripts that I was reading uh, were mediocre to bad, and um, that's because writing a good screenplay is really, really hard, and it's why screenwriters in general should be given a ton more respect. They deserve your attention and your admiration, and they probably deserve a lot more financial copy compensation than they get in the film industry. And most of the scripts that I was reading weren't great. And I wanted to find good ones. So I took a survey of my peers and I asked them to send me a list of their 10 favorite screenplays from that year that hadn't yet gotten produced. I ran all of that information through a pivot table in Microsoft Excel, output it to PowerPoint, slapped a quasi-subversive name on it, and sent out the first blacklist to the world in 2004. And it became a thing somewhat quickly, something of an arbiter of taste in the business. The writers who had scripts on the list started getting more work. The scripts that were on the list started getting made. The scripts that were were made from the list, ended up making a lot of money and winning a lot of awards. Four of the last 12 Best Pictures and 11 of the last 24 screenwriting Oscars were scripts on the blacklist before they got made. Uh, those movies in aggregate, movies that have been on the blacklist have made over $25 billion in worldwide box office, and many of the writers that are on it have sustainable long-term careers making many of the movies that you love, including things like Argo, Slumdog Millionaire, Spotlight, The King's Speech, and most recently, Academy Award-winning Jojo Rabbit. That's the blacklist. Kate, I see, has sort of walked away to watch some VHS classic. Let me see if I can drag her back. We're so excited to bring you the Blacklist podcast once again. Franklin and I have been asked about reviving the podcast many times, so we're so excited to bring you back weekly installments of the show. What's that going to look like? So we're going to do three episodes a month that are going to be interviews with filmmakers and people who love movies of all kinds. That means creators like athletes, musicians, scientists, you name it. We're going to have really thoughtful, in-depth conversations with these folks about the role that movies have played in their lives and how movies have shaped how they view the world. We've got some really exciting folks on deck for that. We can't wait for you to hear our conversation with them about movies. But in addition to those conversations, we're also going to bring back the most beloved part of the former iteration of the Blacklist podcast, The Table Read. We're going to do staged readings of scripts from the Blacklist website with incredible casts here in Los Angeles. We're going to fully produce them and create a really immersive audio experience. If you've listened to the podcast before, you know what you're in for, so get excited. We're really, really jazzed to bring you these movies for your ears only before anybody can see or hear them anywhere. So get hyped for those. 
shows. Really, this podcast is about celebrating great screenwriting and great storytelling. So we're excited to bring you that in weekly installments. Movies for Your Ears are back, y'all. Great interviews are back. And you'll only have to hear Kate and I a little bit. You'll probably welcome Kate. You'll only have to hear me a little bit. But really, without further ado, then, let's jump to our first conversation. We were lucky enough to get in the studio one of my favorite people in the industry. And that's only in part because he is never caught out in the streets without a three-piece suit with a perfect pocket square uh, and matching socks. Paul Feig, so many of the best comedies, so many of the best funny things in the last 20 years uh, he has been responsible for. And speaking of 20 years, Kate, you pointed something out to me that made me very sad in my aged state. Yeah, so if it was 20 years ago, this week we would be watching Freaks and Geeks on NBC gathering around e-old television to hang out with our favorite freaks and geeks. We're going to talk about the legacy of that show with Paul. We're going to talk about A Simple Favor. We're going to talk about Last Christmas, his first film, which no one has seen, and much more. 20 years. Without further ado, the first new episode of the new Blacklist podcast, our interview with Paul Feig. Enjoy. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We love to talk about sort of cinematic beginnings on the show. And so a great place to start there is, do you remember the first movie you saw in a movie theater? Yes, I do. Well, it was, uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess you could consider it. Yeah, okay. It was it was a Winnie the Pooh cartoon, but it wasn't necessarily a, a full length. It was, right. it was before another movie. So I saw that and remember just, oh, I loved it because I was a big Winnie the Pooh fan. Right. But then weirdly, it was paired with Robin and the Seven Hoods. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I was a very chicken kid. Like I hated thunder. I hated loud noises, anything. I was scared of everything. And so, you know, so I got lured in by like, oh, Winnie right. the Winnie Pooh. The Pooh. So wonderful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the, the other movie starts out and then Sammy Davis Jr. jumps up on a bar with a machine gun <laughs> and goes, <laughs> and I was like, ah, and I had to be taken out of the theater in tears. How, how old were you at this point? Uh, gosh, I was five or six. Like and, and this is and you grew up in Michigan, right? Yeah, yeah, right outside Detroit. Um, and and how did your sort of filmic love evolve? Like, was there a movie that you remember then? At some point later on, being the movie that made you fall in love with movies? Yeah, it was. It was a. Here's the thing. I was such a kind of an odd 
kid, and also if you're from Michigan, then like everybody knows about movies and movie making. Now. Right. Yes, movies are just these things, and so for me, movies were all about like, oh, I want to be that guy. Right. You know. So I remember like seeing Close Encounters, being going. My takeaway was, I want to get taken away by a spaceship. Yep. yep. So, so it, I, you know, I love Marx Brothers movies. I mean, there, there's been a few religious experiences in my life with movies. Oh, yeah, those are the ones we're looking mm-hmm. for. Give it, yeah. give it to yeah. us. Yeah. One was uh, they re-released Animal Crackers, the Marx Brothers movie Animal Crackers, and they put it in the big theater in Detroit, which is the Americana Theater, which right. is where they premiere Star Wars and all that gigantic. And it was at the afternoon. My mom took me, and it was packed with college students, and they were going crazy. Like every joke just destroyed, and they were laughing and all this stuff. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, "This is what I'm, you know, you can get." But my takeaway then was, I want to be Groucho Marx because look right. at all the laughs he's getting. Then my second one was, uh, I saw the movie What's Up Doc, same theater, and just thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Went back and saw it like nine times. So I was the original, you know, kids could watch Lion King on, on videotape. Yeah. For, uh, you, you had and you were in, What's Up Doc when I was theater. a kid. You had to go to the theater and see it nine times. Well, I mean, it's interesting though because I mean, look, Kate's from Cincinnati. I grew up in West Central Georgia. I think for all of us, this notion of Hollywood is this thing out there. Mm-hmm. And so, like like you, when I watched movies, it was more, when I saw Jurassic Park, it was, I should be a paleontologist. Right, yeah. Um, or I should, I, should be, I should work in genetics. It was not, I should direct movies. Yeah. And I'm curious how you ended up, because I, I know you went to Wayne State and mm-hmm. moved out to L.A. while you were in college. Yeah. What, how did you make that transition? And what made you say, wait a minute, I, that's where I'm trying to get not, you know, the the professions in any of these movies that I love. Yeah, it was kind of a three-stage thing. I mean, the first was that my next-door neighbor, Mike Sampson, who I lived next to a kid of like, eight, next to a family of eight kids, and the oldest kid, who was my babysitter, became my best friend. Oh, wow. And uh, we, he he got into making Super 8 movies, and my dad always made Super 8 movies, but just, you know, vacation films. But we started actually making films. So, but that was, again, it was more for me to star in these films as the crazy waiter or all that. <laughs> but at least I started to be aware of like, oh, that's how you edit a movie, and right. you know, he got this like you know thing where you cut with the tape and all that stuff. Oh wow! On Super Eight, yeah, yeah. But then when I was at USC, it, the, the first thing that happened was um, I moved out to LA to become a tour guide after my freshman year of college. Again, to be discovered as a director. Was actor. this like a summer? In, you were like, I'm going there for the summer, or were you like, this is how I'm making the move? I I had gotten. I didn't want to be a small fish in a big pond. I right. was just like, I want to make it in Hollywood. How do you do that? Got it. Again, as an actor. So right. my father was friends with a guy who managed Pink Lady. Remember? Wow. They, 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 they have, Pink Lady and Jeff was a failed uh, TV series back in the 70s. But that was our one connection to showbiz. And so he had that guy send me a copy of Variety. And in Variety, in the, the day, they used to have every week this chart of all the studios and their main numbers. And so I just called all the studios, uh, like, in my freshman year. I was just like, I want to go to Hollywood and make it as an actor. Called them all and said, like, do you need actors? And they'd all be like, well, no. <laughs> right. we, we need, We're full up. Yeah. It'd be like, <laughs> we, we have an opening for an accountant. I was like, no, no, no. So I went through the entire list, and the very last one I hit was Universal Studios. And they said, well, we need tour guides. Wow. And I had taken the tour when I was a kid. So I literally said, can I do They said, it's in two days, so you got to get here. So I took my last final exam, packed my next-door neighbor, Mike into the car and we drove straight through to LA and I got oh, here wow. just in time to do the you know do the thing and and got into the training program and then got into the into the program you know was a tour yeah. guide but then that was the summer of 81 
some, uh, they go like, oh, we're going to go see this new movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's supposed to be really good. Okay, cool. So we went the very first showing, you know, Friday morning, line around the block, get in. And that was the first time I went, this is what a movie is. Because oh, wow. that, I never forget when, you know, that opening, it's so, you know, it's so cliched now with the big boulder rolling right, down. Yeah. The first time people saw that, I this literally the entire theater people l- jumped out of their seat and were <laughs> screaming, and I just like I was like, oh my god, that's yeah. what a director does. Was it Act Rollins or like where where was? Do you remember where the screening was? It, it was it was a man, yeah, man Chinese, yeah. That's, that's just peak, just like a perfect yeah, that's cinematic a perfect, experience. Like, yeah. just like, oh, this glow around me. During those years when you're out here, your tour guide transitioning to acting, are you always writing during that time, or is acting? the primary focus because for me you know my first association with you is definitely Sabrina the Teenage Witch and Heavyweights <laughs> there, yeah, ah, yeah thank you yes. <laughs> yeah. is writing is sort of when do, at what point does writing directing become the goal after Raiders of the Lost Ark well it actually was before that but I you know back in the day when it was okay uh, Woody Allen was kind of my hero because well, you know he wrote directed and starred in his own stuff so I was like that's what I want to do so I started writing what I started writing in high school was sketches because I was really into SE TV and all that. So I'd write just comedy sketches of like, you know, the Ronald McDonald show or something that I thought was really funny. Dumb. Um, And so I was doing that a lot. And then when I got to um, Wayne State, I took a screenwriting class which was, you know, bless, bless his heart. It was kind of not, yeah. you know. So I remember, you know, people were just writing whatever they did. And I wrote something. And the teacher going like, you have to be a writer. You have to be a screenwriter. Really? Yeah. And it's very sweet because I look back at what she read and it wasn't very good. But It's interesting, I, though, how many sort of college professors sort of outside of Hollywood are responsible for sort of giving people the kick in the butt to send it. I mean, look, totally. Ryan, Ryan Coogler's story is exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. He had an undergraduate teacher who was like, Maybe you should be doing this. Yeah. And it hadn't even occurred to him prior to that. And, and Well, that's the thing. You don't really think are. that's what's going to be. Exactly. But then the, 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 the irony is that when I then got into USC film school, I kind of came in like, hey, man, I'm supposed to be here because <laughs> my teacher told me what a pro I am. So our very first assignment in our very first screenwriting class, which it was the thing where you had to write what you were going to make as your, your what they called a 290, which was your, your first kind of small film you shot with Super 8 with yeah. no, no dialogue. And uh, so I wrote this thing. Um, about two, two neighbors who don't like each other, and it, it escalates into a big war. And it's you know, I thought it was so clever, and, and this, and she hated it. <laughs> and they did this hilarious thing where they passed out all our stuff to the class, and oh, then they yeah. wrote reviews too. And everybody hated it, yeah. and the most scathing thing. But and she went, literally, I was hearing rumors that she was going to recommend I get taken out of the school. Oh, like I wasn't Jesus. up to the st- oh, no. Yeah, I was not up to the standard. <laughs> oh, but wow. what I here's how I saved myself. I took all those terrible reviews that everybody wrote and I did a sheet of review blurbs where remember the old days they used to do it a lot where you go this movie dot 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 oh, is yeah, great yeah. dot <laughs> yeah, dot dot paragraph yeah. yeah and so I turned these terrible reviews into this sheet of, of raves <laughs> and she thought it was so funny that she gave me another shot and then the thing I wrote she loved so much that now she apparently that years after she used it as an example in her class oh see there you go you know what's amazing about that is I feel like there was in the last five years maybe some some distributor got in trouble for doing exactly Exactly that with a movie that got brutally panned yeah. and excerpted like individual well, now, words, yeah. which is it, kind of hilarious. Like, I mean, like great in quotation marks, and you're like, great what? Oh no, I, <laughs> I still maintain that, like for example, Universal should have leaned into the cats of it all yeah. and just like done that version of the marketing campaign and just like owned it. 
Yeah, I think yeah. ultimately you don't really have a choice at that point. We just so go just, like get high and come yeah. watch. No, but literally, <laughs> I actually think they look. They, they should have campaign, had cabinet branded joints uh, that they handed. Hundred percent, that campaign could have gotten at least a million dollars more for that film. Uh, and and by the way, in, when, once it comes to streaming, I have a feeling it will. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, all right. So another question that we ask of everybody: strangest way you've ever watched a movie? Like strangest location? Like <laughs> under what circumstances was the oddest way you've ever watched a movie all the way through? Wow, that's what a what a cool question. Um, I wish I had something interesting to say. I mean, I've watched movies in the bathtub. <laughs> you know, that's with, a good one on my yeah. iPad. Uh, that's a, you know. Actually, that's a that's a great one. It actually reminds me of the Dalton the Dalton Trumbo photo. Oh yeah, in, yeah. The, in the bath. <laughs> Which if I could do that, I mean, I, I that's never the version I'm imagining. Yeah, no, it was. It's usually it's usually when I'm on on like on location on a production yep. and I download stuff and I just I, you know you're always looking for something to kind of make yourself feel better when you're <laughs> you know the, <laughs> the world's against you exactly. <laughs> so it's like I'll sit in a hot bath and watch something so yeah probably that do you have go to, like are there movies that we yeah so you're, you you have the hot bath you're in production and you're like like are there kinds of movies that you watch when you do that like I mean you're trying to feel better like are there what are the, the movie palliatives for you well I mean it's interesting because I I'm, or does I, that or does that, does that not exist you're well, just no, like you know screw it full metal jacket let's do this <laughs> yeah, exactly well sometimes I mean, there's some movies I'll always go to for some reason the first uh, not the first the, the the Daniel Craig's Casino Royale I could just watch Ooh, that a yeah. bazillion times I mean the whole reason Spy exists is because of that movie because I just wanted to make my version of that um, but no I, I my thing is more I don't want to watch a movie that has anything to do with the movie I'm making at the moment. So, whereas a lot of people will go in and study all the movies that were that way, I don't, and I, I probably should. <laughs> but I would go. I just kind of go like, okay, I know all the tropes because I've watched all these things right. a million times. So, what I now that I'm going to make one, I I can't suddenly go looking for tropes because I might end up really copying something. Clearly, I'm going to copy something anyway because it's all we're, yeah, it's our all, brains are a jumble of all the movies we've seen. Hundred percent. Yeah, but so then I'll, I'll usually go kind of the opposite way and just um, and try to watch something that's completely different from it. So if I'm doing a hard comedy, I watch a lot of thrillers and you know right. horror movies and all that, and then vice versa. So, and, and you're obviously known for comedy, though I think you know you, you've sort of mm-hmm. done some different things in, in, in recent years. Yeah, but all comedy but, based. But but what I, I I what I didn't realize, and maybe the internet has failed me here, but your first <laughs> film. Like that you wrote and directed was not a comedy. Oh I, well, I it. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was. Um, well, technically, the first film I ever did was a thing called Life Sold Separately, which has never been seen because I funded tell it out of pocket. Tell us more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it, it exists. I, I was uh, when I was on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I ended that first season with uh, like about thirty thousand dollars in my pocket from this this gig. So I was, and I'd written this film, feature film that took place in one location. I said, well, how can I write a movie that I can make for no money? Right. And so I wrote, had come up with this idea of like four people have this vision that a spaceship's going to come down and take them away. So they show up in a field, they don't know each other, and then through the day they bond, and then a twist happens. Um, so I took all my money, put it into that, shot this thing on 60 millimeter, and then as soon as I was going into post, I got a call from the Sabrina the Teenage Witch people saying like, oh, we don't know how to write for your character, so we're going to write you out of the show. And oh, I was like, no. Oh, no, like I just bankrupted the family with this movie and so made it, you know, and finished it. And oh my, all, all the problems I had, technical problems we had on this. <clears throat> but the bottom line was 
I finished it. It, it was fine. It, it was very good. And I sh- ended up showing it. Judd Apatow is an old friend of mine. We were right. stand-ups together. But he, when he saw that, when I did my screening of it, he was like, hey, that was really good. I like that. It, I just signed this big TV deal with, with DreamWorks. If right. you have an idea for a TV show, let me know. And that was, you know, a year later, I ended up writing Freaks and Geeks as a no spec and giving it to him. So something good came out of I it. I mean, <clears throat> something great came out yeah, of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, wait, so who, who all was in this film? It was, and uh, where, where is the copy of it now? <laughs> In my I'm ha- actually in fa- my house. So I'm actually personally <laughs> fascinated by these, these these sort of short. Fa- like, there was this. I feel like years ago, before I moved to LA, there was there was this DVD series that basically had like the juvenilia short films of like great directors, oh, and right. you could like sort of watch the stuff that like, the years before they became who they were. And right. So I've remained fascinated by it both both for film, but really just for art in general. Mm-hmm. Like we all started somewhere, and our first things were not. You know, masterpieces. Yeah, exactly. Who who is who were the four? Were you one of the four? Actors? I was I was the lead actor. You were the lead actor. So right, right there, you know, there's a problem. Uh, and then it was um, my friend Carrie Coleman, who I had done a bunch of stuff with. She, she's a great actress. And then, if you're a Freaks and Geeks fan, it was Mr. Kowchevsky and Mr. Rosso oh, played by. There we go. Yes, yeah. <laughs> played played <laughs> these two guys. For. And then the big cameo in what he still says is his best role he's ever done is Pendulette. Shut up. Yes, yes. Where is I demand a screening? You gotta put this I as know. like a special feature we, on a DVD. I do yeah. have Let's it. do like a one night screening for a good cause. I, I yeah, I would. I love to actually. It, we it's, should. We should. We should discuss. I mean, if I, I don't want to take up a lot, of time, I can just tell you very quickly the crazy shit that happened on it. Which was one, I shot it on sixteen millimeter because you know that's all I could afford yeah, at the time. But then I made some really dumb decision that I was going to edit this movie on a movieola. And so instead of <laughs> telecining the uh, the negative, which would have cost like a few dollars more, I had them telecine the work print. So then immediately I go like, I'm not gonna you know edit this thing <laughs> on a movieola. So got this yeah. woman who was working on another project, and she oh, at night she would do it. But then. So so we do that, and then we you know we like it. We're gonna lock it. So and I've been having a great luck with. Bumping people up from things they to jobs they wanted to do but yep. had been you know lower than that. My cinematographer was that way. My editor, all this stuff. So then it came to the cutting the negative. Right. Like I'm going to do the same thing. So back when Christie's had a had an editorial house, there's a guy who worked there and he was an aspiring uh, negative cutter. Oh and so I was like, this is perfect. So he takes the thing and he goes off and does it. And I go to his setup. It's perfectly beautiful. We turned the movie into photocam, and um, I got a call one morning, and the guy's like, um, hey, Paul, this is your color timist. He goes, do you realize every cut in your movie is flashing? I said, what, what do you mean? He goes, well, come in and see. So literally every cut, bam, a big glue hit, like on each cut. Oh, man. And what happened, it, apparently, when you're cutting 35 millimeter, you cut it all from the same side. Right. But when you're cutting 16, it's so small, you, yeah. have to, you have to do tabs on either side. And this guy didn't know that. So literally, he ruined my, my negative. Oh, so all I had was my telecinied work print. So it's the caveat, if we ever do the screening, it literally looks like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like the grain is as big as uh, peaches. Film school flashbacks. <laughs> just like, yeah, I, I can't I, I, tape I, it K, together. K, it's K not working. It's very traumatic. 
time yeah. right now. Um, I got my first movie on not even a moviola. It was like the tiny moviola, the 16 yeah. millimeter, where oh, you're yeah. like literally cranking the frames and you've got a razor blade and you're like, okay, now I understand the art of editing. Yeah. Now you're a very young woman. Now how did this, how are you, why were they making you do this? Um, this was, I was actually the very last program. I went to Columbia College in Chicago and oh. this is hilarious though. I was the last program that got to shoot on beautiful little 16 millimeter oh, cameras that, that. that the name of which has fallen out of my brain. Hmm. But they then transitioned the program over and gave them JVC camcorders <laughs> instead of these 16 millimeter cameras. Oh yeah. And then they gave away the 16 millimeter cameras to like oh. people in the program. They just gave them away? They gave them away because they were going to throw them away. Oh, They're like, who needs so this? So depressing. But I'm very glad I did that, honestly. Like as, as yeah. insane as it was to be taping shots to a wall, like nothing makes you appreciate uh, movie magic or Final Cut more. Yeah, yeah, well, when I was at USC, that was the year, it was like it, it, right in 83, I think they were going to start transitioning into video too. And it was the biggest uproar because all the, everybody there, nobody yeah. wanted to do video. Yeah. So, it, oh my God, I just remembered this fights about that. Oh, we're man. not doing TV. I mean, look, those fights continue today, which I think are, <laughs> yeah. are sort of increasingly silly at the end of the day. I think like, so too. But, uh, but yeah, but it's real for some people. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. People. Yeah, uh, yeah. Speaking of freaks and geeks, I was yes. going to say, I know what I was doing on Thursday nights 20 years ago this week. I was watching Freaks and Geeks with my parents because I had cool parents. Oh, yeah. Um, Excellent. One of the greatest television shows of all time, a Thank show you. that I think only gets better with age. I was curious, what's been the most surprising part of that legacy? You know, you're just saying you wrote the script for Judd kind of on spec. Mm -hmm. And now 20 years on, we're still talking about it as if it's one of the greatest shows because it is. <laughs> uh, so what's what's that process? been like I mean it's just it, it's everything you always hope with everything you ever do is that it has right. a life and especially television you know because this was you know this is 1999 we came on and I was always enamored we used, my wife and I have always gone to London we're big Anglophiles and what I always loved in London was any TV show they ever did you could buy on video yeah. you know because they did six episodes at a time so I was always like 
well, why don't we have that here? Because if you have a show and it got canceled, unless you know, unless it went to syndication, yeah. it just disappeared. And so when we got canceled, that was it. You kind of go like, oh my God. So we were this really well-reviewed, critical favorite, yeah. and people who loved it, loved it. But so you know, for three years after that, it's like, oh yeah, I heard you did that. I heard that was really good. And you're like, oh fuck. So you know, so when it finally got on a DVD in 2004. And you know, we had we had been offered a few times to get it out on home video, but nobody would pay for the for the music rights. Right. So they wanted to replace all the music with just library music. I was like, we, we can't do that. Yeah. I'd rather not have it out there right. than to do that. And so finally, Shout Factory stepped up and put like a million dollars into it. And it's really interesting. I feel like Freaks and Kicks is one of the first shows that sort of got a real cultural reevaluation because of the DVD release. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll be yeah. honest, that's yeah. where I first saw it. Oh, totally. And I feel that's like it's sort of it. in the same way that like The Wire sort of caught on very late in its run because people caught yeah. it on DVD. Like it's a that it's, you know the only way to kind of appreciate anything in TV is to be able to watch it in a row. Because I remember I worked on the first season of of Mad Men, and I did like I don't think the tenth or eleventh episode. You know, and they were it was just coming out on yep. AMC. It was doing terrible. And I remember saying the Mad. I said like. What's going to happen is it's going to come out on DVD yep. and it's going to be this is going to become huge. I guarantee you right. that if they don't cancel it, and that's the only thing <laughs> if they I, don't cancel it, you know, because I think had that <laughs> one model, caveat, yeah, exactly. But but that that language was up by that time, right? <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> on um, with Freaks and Geeks, if it was a few years later where that yeah. model was there, I guarantee we would have at least got another season. Well, not only that, I mean, if, if streaming had been around, I feel like people would have caught on even late in the first season, mm-hmm. and it probably would have continued. Yeah, no, it's sad. You think. How how many kind of shows that might have been great sort of died in the in the But in you the do cradle. have the rare distinction of you created one perfect season of television, which most Thank people you. never <laughs> do in their lives. Well, so. <laughs> I do have times I go like, maybe it's okay that we got canceled because, I, you know, we had tons of great <laughs> ideas, really talented people, but it could have all gone off the rails. It, 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 it has happened to others. Step away, sure. step away. <laughs> hit, hit it and quit, as, uh, <laughs> exactly, as James Brown exactly. says. Um, all right, so we're going to go back to the sort of the, the, the questionnaire, if you will. Yes. Are there any films in the sort of proverbial cinematic canon, like films that are great films by reputation that for whatever reason you refuse to watch? <laughs> Well, I, the, here's the funny thing because I'm I'm writing uh, this monster movie. I'm, I'm actually going to rewrite on it now that I want to hoping to do it's one of my next couple films uh, for Universal. I again was such a chicken who ran out of Robin of the Seven Hoods right. that I'm terrified of horror movies, and so just you know so I but even the monster movies right. you know so. Um, so when I took this on, it's like I'm finally going to watch these things I was so terrified right. of and. They're great. Yeah. They're not that terrifying. I mean, they're, they're fantastic. <laughs> they're, they're really not. I mean, look, it's funny. We've been talking about this a lot recently that for me, like the most terrifying movie of my childhood was Candyman. Oh, yeah. And it's the one that's still like, and they're I'm a 41-year-old man. I will never say it five times in front of the mirror. <laughs> it will not happen. Um, but yeah, the old monster movies aren't that terrifying. You, you expect them to be, though. They're fun. Yeah. They're really fun. But then, you know, I've also then with like modern horror is like, you know, a slasher and all that. I'm like, oh, there's no way. There's no way. Right. But then the other night I was like, I've never seen Nightmare on Elm Street. I Let me just watch. It yeah. was so much fun because it's, it's so, so fun. dumb <laughs> it's really and good. hilarious and amazing in-camera effects. Yeah. And I, then yeah. I go like, I'm a 57-year-old man. I've cut myself off in my life from so many things, either because I was afraid of them or because I thought I was too cool to watch them. You know, and I think that happens so much. You know, we look, we're around yeah. all these people all the time. He's like, you know, you're like, oh, I don't watch that. I don't watch that. And so I just go like, just try to watch stuff and try not to be so fucking, you know, judgmental because clearly 
tons of people are getting something out of this. And as a creative person, I'm not trying to copy that, but like, I need to know that as a creative, you need to know what people are connecting with. Maybe you can give them the higher version of that. Maybe you don't do anything like it, but you have it in your brain what people are connecting to. So usually we ask, uh, what is the film that everyone told you to watch that you resisted and then loved? I feel like you already answered that question with Nightmare <laughs> on Elm Street. Uh, and that might also be your answer to this question, but... Uh, what is it, like the film that everyone thinks is terrible that you will defend forever? Oh gosh! Any sort of proverbial <laughs> guilty pleasure movie. Ava DuVernay is the first person that had ever asked me this question. And it was one where it's like, that's an interesting question that will tell you a lot about a person. Yeah, no, totally. Oh gosh! I mean, other than my movie, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I really that like. A legitimate answer, I really like the new Ghostbusters. <laughs> um, I, I, look, I so did I. So I don't know if that counts as one that everybody <laughs> Thank you, hates. Sir. No, I'm, I'm trying to think because I mean. There is stuff that I really like that people don't like. Oh, I mean, I haven't seen it so long, but all I know is that I had this terrible experience as a kid because my cousin and I thought the movie Tommy was, like, genius. Ken Russell's Tommy. We were like, oh, my God. So I remember, like, we just were proselytizing everyone. We took my older cousin, who was so cool, (laughs) and we're sitting there kind of watching the whole time, and about halfway through, she goes like, is this over yet? <laughs> that is a rough. That is a rough experience when you're evangelizing hard for something. You're watching the movie with someone, and you can tell they are not seeing what you oh, saw. Totally. It is one of the most agonizing. You're just like, okay, oh. fine. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe, I, I, maybe it was just the moment. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I'm sorry for wasting your time. It's a good thing you didn't get obsessed with uh, Lizjomania and take her to see Lizjomania. Oh that oh, even yeah. crazier. Oh my God, that's right. I, oh, I yeah. remember that. <laughs> Tommy is wild, though. Tommy is either like love it, hate it. There is no middle ground it is on that bananas. movie. Yeah, but but it kind of. I just appreciated how it just went for it, you know. And it, look, the minute you put Elton John in like shoes that are twenty feet high, come on, you're doing something right, right? No, <laughs> Tina Turner's The Acid Queen is worth the yeah. price of admission. Absolutely. And, and and the beans coming out of the TV that was bananas. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I can't defend it, but I will. I will say that I did love it. Do you want to ask about uh, women? I would love to ask about women. Ask a woman yes. about a woman. Um, you know, <laughs> even getting back to Lindsay Weir, so many of your films and stories have focused not only on women, but really complex, fascinating women. I was watching A Simple Favor last night hmm. and even the scene with Linda oh, Cardellini. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, this is just an extension of Lindsay Weir in some ways. <laughs> um, but what kind of, you know, as a male filmmaker, what attracts you to stories about these really challenging, complex women and to dig into their stories in a way that, frankly, most other studio movies aren't doing presently. Well, I mean, you know, I was I was an only child growing up. That family of eight kids I lived next door to, six of them were girls, and um, they were all younger, so they were all my best friends. In school, I had so many bullies that I just hung out with mostly girls or else nerdy dudes like myself. So Same. I just was friends with women. And because of that, I just liked them. And we had, you know, fun times and laughs. And they were, you know, sometimes they get mad at each other. But they were fully rounded, three-dimensional people. And then I also grew up watching old movies, you know, from the 30s and 40s. Yep. It had real equal men and women parts in the leads. So then as, you know, I started watching commercial movies over the years in the 70s and 80s and 90s, especially in comedy. Yeah. And you're going like, what is going on? These are terrible representations of women. It really got driven home to me, though, once I was out here and befriended these actors and comedians who are in these movies and go like, oh, yay, so-and-so's in the movie. And you're like... 
what's happening? Why are they just playing this really bitchy, <laughs> mean girlfriend who's just a complete, you know, you know, she's the scapegoat for the for the guys. Yeah, who I remember reading an interview specifically referenced Sarah Silverman in School of Rock. Yeah, because I love Sarah. I know, look, I love that movie. Yeah, but it was, you know, but it, you're not wrong. But it's yeah. like you're like Rachel Paris. It was a Rachel, wait, no, uh, Rachel um, who was in the the Hangover, who's one of the oh, funniest people yeah. I know, and she's just playing the shrew. <laughs> you know, and look, yep. very fine. I, I, again, I don't want to ever sound like I'm putting anything down. It's just I go like I know they're so funny. I want to see them be great and awesome yeah. and three dimensional. You know, and it's also why I hate the term strong female character mm. because like then you got to be the other way. And so I just I've just been spent my whole life trying to recreate all the women that I've known in my life, and and I've always been obsessed with female friendship just because I've watched my wife go through whatever friendships she's had, and it's just and I've never seen it on screen, and I find it very fun. There's like uh, my. I think my most fun people to hang out with are, are women who are friends because then we just, I feel like we laugh more and and it's it doesn't go into areas of discussion that I don't know things about. You know, there's nothing worse than hanging out with guys. I'm not a sports person, so <laughs> I've got it down to an art of how to sound like I know about sports. Yeah, it's just enough. You know? Oh, yeah. Totally, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Who's your favorite? Well, I mean, who's yours? Yes, of course. He's great. So I can One bluff, sport. but I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do do you find? I mean, look, there, there's always this sort of you know write what you know thing, um, and obviously you're not a woman, even though you spend a great deal of time. So, like, how do you incorporate? How do you, as a male director, navigate sort of telling stories about women? I imagine it involves a pretty collaborative process, but like, yeah. how do you think about that as a storyteller working with sort of the extraordinary talents that you've consistently worked with throughout your career? Well, I, I think I'm a pretty like uh, feminized guy uh, or feminine guy I will say I, I just my brain seems to think more <laughs> like all my female friends I don't my brain doesn't default to guy talk and the things that I all my not, not, I would say my guy friends because we're all pretty sensitive dudes right. but like guys I've been around who are guys I'm always like I feel threatened by what they're talking about and there's an aggression about it so I think I'm already in the mindset of it and then so whenever like there's a story I always think of it as a woman's story um, even if it's something that's personal to me, because I guess that's I feel that's how I face the world in a weird way. And then it's just about surrounding myself with, with amazing women and deputizing everybody from my actors to my producers to you know assistants to you know people on the set to call me on stuff because you know look I've seen movies made by women where I go the male parts you go like well that's a stereotype right. too. I think everything needs to be this this parody of everybody checking everybody else so that we're not stereotyping. And Look, I, I, my movies, I know some of my haters say like, oh, you're, you, know, you make all these guys. Misandry, they're constantly saying I do. Because, <laughs> because I dared make. It's a big problem I dared in Hollywood. To, yes, it really it's is. It's a huge, huge I know. Because they're like, oh, how dare you make Chris Hemsworth this, you know, he's the, the <laughs> hot, <laughs> dumb guy. It's like, yeah, how dare me. Right. Like, what it's a terrible like, thing. And Chris was definitely not in on that joke yeah, at I, all. Well, <laughs> honestly, that part wasn't even supposed to be that way. He was just supposed <laughs> to be like bored. And he suddenly like started doing this hilarious, dumb stuff. And we're like, let's go with this. <laughs> so, uh. I don't know, but um, these are these are very controversial statements, Paul. The idea, uh, I know, know, I know, parody, collaborative work environments, everybody checking. <laughs> it. I don't know, I don't know. I, I, know, know I don't mean to be survive. so tough on this. Uh, it's a problem. <laughs> it's a real problem. Do you ever hit any kind of resistance, like at the studio level, for you know, we're talking about dumbing down the Chris Hemsworth character? Is there ever a push to like, mm, does this woman have to be like this complex? <laughs> like, are you sure she would make this morally compromised decision? Right. <laughs> I'm pretty lucky now because I, I mean. It, it would happen more when I before bridesmaids when I was trying to sell more female heavy stuff because it would but it was more this thing of they would just go oh well, 
oh, you, it can't be a you can't be a woman in the lead. And but they would say it in a way, you know, and I was just green enough where yeah. like, oh God, I'm so sorry. Like I always felt like I made a mistake that I was pitching right. a movie about it. And then yeah, you know, after a number of years, you start going, well, okay, why? why? It's like, well, it won't sell here, blah, 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 blah. Yep. Which, you know, I'm is part of Reframe. We're starting to find out that might not even be true. Well, I was going to say, because I heard the same thing early in my career, was, and it was, you know, female-driven action doesn't work. And I'm like, yeah. do you got numbers on that? Because yeah. I don't, like, Titanic feels like a female-driven action movie. Yeah, the entire totally. James Cameron, like, catalog yeah. is that. And they all did pretty well. And and now what we're seeing is all of this conventional wisdom that we were told was was law mm-hmm. was like all convention and no wisdom and yeah. sexist and racist on top of it. Yeah. So, you no, know, because the, the product wasn't even there to test it. Exactly. And, or when it was, it wasn't supported. So they so it was yeah. like, of course yeah. it, it didn't work. And it's like, well, you didn't market it. So of course it yeah. didn't work. Yeah. Um, I actually want to go back to the bridesmaid thing because I read in another interview uh, where you said that it, it sort of happened at a moment where you were sort of at bottom. You had yeah. done, it, you were directing a digital ad campaign for a department store yeah. that, among others, starred our current president. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It's, Donald <laughs> drove me to the dark side. <laughs> it was, Donald yeah. Trump, by the way, the flip on that is we have Donald Trump to thank for bridesmaids, <laughs> which is, I'm sure, how he would pitch it. But can you tell us that story really quickly? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got, you know, I was. I, I want all I ever wanted to make is movies in my life, you know. And Freaks and Geeks came because I couldn't make a movie, so I thought, oh, I felt, but it, we faced it very cinematically. And then I had, you know, two movies that bombed, you know, I'm David and Uncompany Miners. And so I was in movie jail, directing TV, and I loved it. I was working on the greatest shows. I mean, right. The Office and the rest of Development, all these things, but it, they weren't mine. Right. So I remember just going, like, I'm kind of running down the clock. Okay, I'll have this career and I'll get through it. So in the middle of this, or towards the end of it, I get a call from my commercial agent saying, oh, there's this big thing they're going to do for Macy's. They're short films. It's Martha Stewart and Tommy Hilfiger and all these people. And, and you know, and you can help write these. I remember this campaign. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. actually kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. I, the, I do remember this campaign. Apparently, Martha Stewart went to like a shitty frat house yeah. and like redid it. It was very fun. And so, so, um, so I'm doing them, and it's cool. I'm living in New York. And I'm kind of digging it. But then you just start going, ah, oh, what am I doing? And then one was with Donald Trump selling these suits. And they, they just kind of, you know, I, I, you know, Donald Trump was just like kind of a clown. Right. You know, he was funny and had this, you know, dumb personality that he would put across on TV. And so um, they just kept going like, Donald Trump, when you do that, he doesn't want to be there. He, you got to get him out fast. You got to get him out fast. And I'm such a people pleaser. I'm always like, so I'm just getting so tense and crazy. Like, how am I going to do this? So I have it all set. I go like, okay, what's going to happen is I'm going to have the cameras ready to go because it's kind of documentary style. When the minute he walks in, I'm going to have that camera on and go like, let's go. Right. And so he comes in and I'm like, okay, Donald, we're ready. He's like, whoa, hold on, hold on. You know, I got to put on my makeup. And so I'm like, cool. But you realize I was ready to go, right? <laughs> okay. So then he sits and he's actually made up and Melania's there and he's he turns out he was a fan of The Office, so he's like, hey, you know, he, this guy directs The Office. Right. So I'm like, oh, he, that's nice. Um, so we do the first half, and it's in two chunks. We have to do before and after. So we do the first half, and I get him through it like in 30 minutes. And I'm like, got it. We're great. He's like, great. Oh, my God, this is great. Hey, you, this guy's the greatest. All right, I'll see everybody later. I was like, wait, no, no, Donald, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, actually, we have to reset and do the second half. He's like, wait, what? I was supposed to be out here an hour ago. And it's like, well, you only got here 45 minutes ago, so I don't quite know how to make that happen for you. And so then I I just got in this thing. There was a weird energy about him that just made you crazy. Yeah. And so I'm running around, and I get all this stuff, and finally, like, okay, we're done, like an hour later. He goes, 
And I literally think I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. And so I'm like, okay, he's gone. He's gone. I'm all sweating and everything. And the ad guys are, okay, cool. Let's get the other stuff. I'm like, well, uh, we have it all, don't we? Like, no, no. you got to get all the other cutaways. And I have this kind of weird meltdown right. where they're literally going, okay, now you got to get this. Now you got to get this. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And that was, I went home that night and I was just like, oh my God, I think I'm I, like, what am I doing? Right. And that was when I got the call, my agents saying like, hey, you know that wedding movie you were Like the, literally that night? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was at the Bowery Hotel. And wow. uh, yeah, because I'd been to a table read of of, uh, of what would be Bridesmaids right. uh, like three years earlier when I was finishing up Unaccompanied Minors, one of my bombs. And, um, and Judd wanted me to come he was wanting me to come on board then, but the script needed a lot of work, and right. so we gave a lot of notes. But then I wasn't able to kind of come on board full time to shepherd it because I thought other thing. So I said, just keep you know keep me in yeah. the loop. Yeah. So then three years later, suddenly the Amazing. loop <laughs> opened up, and there I was. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned that it was uh, that Donald Trump's suits uh, were a critical part of this, um, and I feel like I would be remiss if I, if we didn't talk about your suits. Oh, thank you! I actually um, wearing a Donald Trump. Yeah, suit right now. You know, look, you, you can't because we're a podcast. You can't see what he's wearing now, but it's a perfectly tailored three piece suit. We got a rosette. We got a beautiful uh, pocket we got, square. The accessories game it's is all, on flat. It's yeah. on point. Yeah. The tie matches the uh, the socks. A light pink shirt. Thank uh, you. I'm, I assume that you did not always dress like this. And I'm curious when that began. Well, I mean, honestly, it began when I was a kid. Um, I watching all those old movies of Cary Grant and you know and, yeah. and all the you know the Fred Astaire, all that. I became obsessed with that kind of fashion. And so, and my mother, I was an only child, so I had a little Lord Fauntleroy thing going. <laughs> and so, the minute anything I took an interest in something, she right. would like immediately jump on it. And so it was like, I want to wear suits. Okay, so immediately we get in the car and we go down to the Somerset Mall, which was the oh fancy God, mall on the other side of town. And I was like eight or nine and went into the boys' department and they had a Pierre Cardin three-piece suit. And got it tailored. So I was wrong. You have always been dressing like this. <laughs> I have, but there was a gap in the middle. Okay. Uh, because when I became a stand-up, because I did that all through school, and but that was also the 70s, so it was disco time, too. So right. people so were, it was very different suits. Yeah, but it was always, <laughs> but, you know, suit and tie, yeah. but the collar out and the angel's flight pants and all that stuff. So, um, But then when I became a stand-up in the 80s, I started in suits. I was wearing Willy Wear suits. Look those up. It was They were really, these. The, the, they were the suits that you rolled up the sleeves. Oh, yeah. All right, and they were yeah. kind of loose, and I wore like a bolo tie. I had my whole style. I always wanted to have a style. But then as I started getting more success as a <laughs> relative success, as a stand-up, everybody was kind of like, they didn't feel like they were connecting to me enough. And this was kind of in that time. Of, <laughs> we like, know who not, you are. Yeah, we, we're, we're not, you're, we, we, we don't identify with you. We yeah. need you to be a little bit more accessible. <laughs> See, that's exactly <laughs> it. Got it, yeah. So then I switched over to bowling shirts. I bought a bunch of vintage bowling shirts and wore those. And like, you know, Converse, I you know, All-Stars. I feel like I'm... Have vague memories of seeing you there, just stand up at some point. There is footage. Yeah. yeah, it does exist. So then, yeah. So then I was kind of like, oh, now I'm that guy, and and that and it kind of carried through all the way until through Freaks and Geeks because when we did Freaks and Geeks, I, I was dressing in just jeans and t-shirts because I was trying to weirdly act like I was a high school student <laughs> in my head. I let, let my hair grow long and everything. Not, but but ironically, it, in high school, wearing the three pieces. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> I was becoming another kid from high school. 
But then it was really when I got out, when we finished uh, Freaks and Geeks and people wanted to take meetings with me for my next project, that I would go to these meetings and everybody was wearing suits and ties and right. dressed up. And I was in the jeans and T-shirt and they put me on the low couch. And I was like, I don't like this power dynamic at all. <laughs> so I said, like, I'm going to go back to the suits and be like them. Right. The minute I did that, they suddenly went to jeans I, and t I was just going to say, no one's wearing suits anymore no. except the agents. Exactly. It's basically the only people left doing that. And in true Hollywood fashion... The minute I walked into a suit, nobody – they weren't in it. They didn't feel ashamed. They were like, oh, look at the look at the boob who doesn't realize that we don't dress that way anymore. 100%. Yeah. So, And I was just like, you know what? I like this power dynamic. So you can think what you want. I'm going to keep the suits and so on. It's, it's a phenomenal I, look. I love to Thank disarm you. people in L.A. like by being either very overdressed or very underdressed, yes. which like frequently you're one of the two for totally. whatever you're at. But it really it, – it throws people off significantly. You got to do it. You yeah. have to do it. Exactly. <laughs> that is my go-to move. <laughs> as well, it, although it is usually underdressed, I must embarrassingly admit. You always look good. Uh, thank you. It's the hair. It throws people off. Um, so the other, another question that we ask everybody, so I worked for Sidney Pollack for the year before he died, and, wow. and one of the things that he said that blew my mind was that he was only interested in making movies about two subjects, love and war, because they mm. were the only two things that in eons of human history we had no better understanding now than we did. Huh. Fantastic. Uh, wow. So we ask everybody, favorite movie about love, favorite movie about war? Gosh, uh, favorite about love. We're going to the core of the human experience here. Really I know what, that's what we're trying to do. Man, you're blowing my mind. Uh, it, the pressure's on to sound smart, you know, because uh, it, it isn't even about that. It's just what is the like, you know, gut. I want to pull out some love. obscure like Finland movie or something. Oh, that's wow. what Kate does. There you go. That is not what Kate is <laughs> like. Here's this weird Kate, movie from the eighties. Yeah, you yeah it's, seen. Usually it's, an, it's a movie from the eighties that is currently out of print. Is yeah. usually the go-to. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, love. Let's say uh, I'm just gonna pull one out of the hat. I'd say uh, bringing a baby. Because I love screwball comedies, really? and that, that's yeah. why I love What's Up, Doc, and all that. Absolutely. And uh, war, gosh. Um, hmm. I mean, isn't love war, really? I mean. When we think about it. You're not wrong. Exactly. You're not wrong. War, gosh. Well, that's, I mean, I, I, hmm. Because I don't like war movies, necessarily. But, but that's also war is so many, yeah. so many things. Uh, I'd say uh, I would say bring a baby. There you go. Because they're go. at odds the whole time. Final answer. Uh, can you please make a screwball comedy really soon? I, I would love to see it. Thank you so much. One of my goals. <laughs> one of my goals. Uh, kind of in the same vein, and we were getting in this earlier, and we were talking about Marx Brothers movies. But you know, comedy means so many different things to mm. different people. But if you were tasked with, you know, the alien ship has landed, uh, I have to pick two movies to show these aliens what comedy is. <laughs> what would you choose? Oh gosh, that's a great one. Uh, um, oh, well, actually, this this <laughs> this is probably what I should have said about war. Oh, here we go. But it will work for this, Dr. Strangelove. Boom, that's my answer. Yeah. Yep. That's actually my answer on the war movies. I totally yeah. agree. I think it'll just teach them everything about it's, how it's, nuts it's we covers, all are. It, covers, it covers a lot, especially right now. Exactly, exactly. And then uh, I think the other one would be... Um, I mean, I'd, uh, just, uh, I'd probably have to go back to <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark, weirdly. Uh, um, just because I think that... I love that movie because it's funny and it's got, it's got every... I mean... Those guys did know what they were doing. I know that people say, like, you know, Star Wars and Raiders kind of ruin showbiz a little bit. Yep. But at the same time, Star Wars is a comedy. I mean, when I saw that movie, opening day in Detroit, there was a hard laugh every minute in that movie. And the same thing yeah. with, with um, Raiders. Like, and you go, like, I, I, I just love movies that do that. Like, I've never wanted to be some kind of, you know, big, fancy, artistic guy. I want to make the movies that gave me those feelings that my favorite movies did, where you go, like, I'm laughing, I'm, I'm thrilled, and you walk out feeling great. That's kind of all I care about. So uh, this is a random question. You have made two Christmas movies now. 
On a company miners yes. in Last Christmas. I don't know how that happened. Well, that, so that was my first question. Is that just a coincidence? Yes. Or, okay, it is just a coincidence. Total coincidence. So there's nothing specific. Because, I, look, I, I think that there is something about Christmas movies, right? Where and, and I think it has to do with sort of this communal experience of watching movies. Because mm. you, you're, you're with your family during the holidays. Like, my family used to, you know, we would open presents. And then in the afternoon on Christmas Day, we'd go to the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Um, is there... Is there, do you have a favorite Christmas movie, separate mm-hmm. from your own? Mm-hmm. And is it just a coincidence, which it sounds like it, it very much was? Well, yeah. My favorite. Well, here's the thing. My favorite movie of all time, yeah. hands down, is It's a Wonderful Life. Sounds completely corny, but no, it is. Because, again, that checks every single box. Yep. Um, but, you know, no, when, when, when Unaccompanied Minors, when that one popped up, it was, it was really because I had been told, you know, I wanted to be a filmmaker, and I made, uh, you know, I Am David, which was like, you know, it was when Walden was just starting up. So it was basically right. an indie. And my other movie, obviously, I made out of pocket. And so all I'd heard was like, studio film, oh, my God, there are going to be nightmares. They micromanage yeah. you, blah, 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 blah. How scary, how scary. And then, um, then I remember when the, the movie uh, um, Dukes of Hazard came out. Oh, wow. I remember just kind of going like, well, he did it, and then right. somehow they got through it. This is silly. Why don't I just try to do it? But I was a TV director and kind of, you know, had, had had a couple of one strike against me. So when you're a TV director, the only thing you kind of can get, or at least back then, was a family film. And that's the only thing they would kind of trust you with right. because they were kind of toss off things. So I got sent that script for Unaccompanied Minors, and I was like, well, this is fun. Yeah. You know, and I thought maybe this is the chance just to try it. Let's just try it. The right. stakes seem low. Let's do it, and let's see if it's a nightmare, then I know what, what to expect. Yeah. And so the, kind of that was what it came from. But then again, you know, I like what I liked about Christmas movies is they're very colorful and you can have fun with all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I did it. But after I did that and it didn't do well, I remember saying, like, I'm never doing a Christmas movie again. Right. But then I was sitting around a couple of years ago right. getting ready to do another film, and Emma Thompson, who I almost worked with because I was going to direct Late Night, and then our schedules and didn't work. She's the best. Yeah, she's the best. Yeah. And we became – we were friends, and we always stayed in contact. So one day just she drops this script in my inbox – and says, like, you know, we should make this. I, you know, we'd have a lot of fun. So I'm like, oh, my God, it's so cool. Oh. And I open it up. Yeah. It's called Last Christmas. I'm like, God <laughs> damn it. <laughs> and then I read it, and I loved it. So, you know, here I am, two in. All right. So I, I, we're, we're rounding around towards the final question. Uh, do you have anything else you want to ask before I drop in on that last one? How does it feel knowing that you're going to have Christmas movies that people watch for the rest of eternity? I hope they do. I mean, honestly, Unaccompanied Minors it rarely shows up when they do those kind of Christmas film festivals. So it, that the biggest lesson was like, they don't all, you know, kind of go like, oh, cool, at least they're going to get watched once a year. You go like, oh, no, actually, they, a lot of them don't because there's so many. So, it, 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 like everything in my career, I can never go like, and phew, that worked. <laughs> it's always like, oh, I hope. So, last, I'm hoping last Christmas stands the test of time. But, uh, yeah, but at least there's a reason why you have to watch it. No, I think, you know, it comes, I feel like last Christmas, too, we haven't had a new Christmas movie that really tugged at the heartstrings the way yeah. that one does in yeah. a while. So, I feel like it's going to be oh, quickly good. in the road. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. No, that, that, yeah. I mean, that script really devastated me when I read it. So I was like, I have to do it. And of course, the twist is what everybody got so you know crazy about was right. so divisive. <laughs> I was like, that's the thing that made me want to do it. So I guess I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So final question. Uh, what's the single image from a film that has stayed with you that you expect to sort of stay with you for the rest of your life? Wow. Oh, my gosh. That's a great 
boy, there's so many like real. There's so many great ones. I know that are burned into our soul. But it's like, is is there one that, for whatever reason, and again, I think that it has less to do with sort of a perfection of the image and more to do with sort of the moment we were exposed to it and sort of the emotional context that we return to it in. But I'm just curious, like, is there one? Well, I mean, it's it's an edit. <laughs> Does that count? Yeah. yeah. I would say it's at the end of Doctor Strange Love when they're standing or sitting around and you're laughing and then they cut to the bomb going off. Yeah. And I remember the first time I watched it I was like, you know, like a teenager and like laughing. And then my my best friend, Mike, was he was like he goes, yeah, but think about it. That's really dark. And I'm even going like, shit, that is. Like, I'm yeah. laughing like the world is over. And so I think it was it was that, because I'm really, as a filmmaker, I love the A-B cut. You know, we're always looking for the, the B-side laugh, right. which is, you know, what is And then we cut to, you know, classic ones, bridesmaids in bed. Yeah, I want you to leave, but I don't want to sound like a dick. And then we cut to her walking out. That gets a giant laugh just because of the fact that, and now she's leaving. Right. So, yeah, so that, that, like, to me, that's just the most horrific. And, you know, and it's the doomsday clock ticks down for yeah. for all of us, it becomes even more pertinent. So there you go. We love a bitter laugh. They're the best kind. Exactly. Yeah. I'm telling you. Good cringe and a good bitterness and all's well. I can think of no better way to end. Paul, thank you. Thank you Thanks, so much. Paul. This is so much fun. Uh we we gotta do the uh screening of life sold separately. You know what? I will I will pull that DVD. Out. If you are if you are down, we are down yeah. to figure it out. And I think there are a lot of people who'd be down to watch it. I yeah, I would I'd be curious. It, oh, it's cringy. But uh it, I, But that's what makes it amazing. I, I had a friend a couple years ago who wanted to do a first art festival and everybody just brings the thing that they're like, Oh, yeah. I can't look at that anymore. How nice would that be to just be I like, We like, all started somewhere? Yeah, remember the Mortified show? That was always yeah. fun, so we, we may have to do this in coming yeah. years. Okay. And uh, can we also do a stage reading of the ALF spec that I wrote? <laughs> <laughs> also, yes. Yeah. Uh, It'll be a double header. <laughs> let's talk. <laughs> Seriously, though, thank you very much. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, you guys. From Luminary Media, the Blacklist Podcast is a production of the Blacklist and Ninth Planet Audio. Our executive producers are me, Franklin Leonard, Kate Hagan, Han Sani, and Jimmy Miller. Gabrielle Horton is our lead producer, and Nicholas Bertel composed our theme music. Marvin Ya engineered this episode, and it was edited and mixed by Kevin Liu. Have a question, comment, criticism, whatever, hit us up on social media. I am Franklin Leonard on Twitter and Franklin J. Leonard on Instagram. Kate is that Hagan girl. Girl is G-R-R-L on both Instagram and Twitter, and we are The Blacklist, The B-L-C-K-L-S-T, on both Instagram and Twitter. You can find us online at blacklist.com. That is B-L-C-K-L-S-T.com, Blacklist with no vowels. We'll see you online. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.